The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. He was born in Canada in 1915 and died 90 years later as perhaps the greatest of the great American novelists. His birth name was Solomon Bellows, but he was better known as Saul Bellow, author of short stories and essays, but above all, novels. Big novels, weighty novels, packed with intellect and ready to take on the biggest concerns of the 20th century. Herzog was his, and The Adventures of Augie March, Henderson the Rain King, and Mr. Samler's Planet, and Ravelstein, and Humboldt's Gift. He won the National Book Award for Fiction three times, still the only writer to have pulled that off, and just about every other prize you can imagine, including the Nobel Prize for Literature, which he was awarded in 1976. In bestowing that honor, the Nobel Committee said Bellow's writing was marked by, quote, the mixture of rich, picaresque novel and subtle analysis of our culture, of entertaining adventure, drastic and tragic episodes in quick succession, interspersed with philosophic conversation, all developed by a commentator with a witty tongue and penetrating insight into the outer and inner complications that drive us to act or prevent us from acting, and that can be called the dilemma of our age. End quote. Saul Bellow, today on the History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. Saul Bellow. I could do 10 episodes on the guy. Every book is interesting. Every story, every letter he wrote every sentence. The one thing that I struggle with, with Mr. Bellow, the only thing, is that he sometimes is petty and sometimes he's wrong. That's it. <laughs> That's two things, I guess. Sometimes I think he was not such a nice person. I'm not hero-worshipping him as a person. You'll hear my hero-worship of him as a writer coming up, but once in a while, he makes me cringe. It's as if you have a grandfather or an uncle or Someone who's kind and loving and generous and smart and funny and rich and successful and is everything you could possibly want from a family member. And then you learn that he cheated on his wife or that he can't stop bickering with his spouse over stupid things or that when he was younger, he ignored his kids or that he speaks his mind as he puts it and says some dumb things once in a while. Hey, I'm just telling you the truth. I'm the only one. Brave enough to do it. <laughs> That's what they say, right? I'm the only one who's brave enough to say what's true. And you think, no, you're the one who is too stuck in your ways to open your mind to the truth on this particular subject. That's the only problem with Saul Bellow. But I get it. Those are flaws. For some people, they're enough. Enough to set Saul Bellow aside. But if you can look past those flaws... The gifts and the pleasures are undeniable. A huge, hugely rich body of work. A great treasure trove of prose, observations. Mike Palindrome is here today. We're going to talk about Saul Bellow. Celebrate him, really, as Mike and I try to take ten great things in a draft, five each, but we are all over the place in this one because there are just so many great things about Saul Bellow 
about Saul Bellow's writing that we sort of can't contain ourselves. He's dynamic. He's virtuosic. He's fantastically funny without being crude or crass or overly broad. He's not slapstick. He's not toilet humor. He's just funny through his prose, through his characters and their plight and their methods of dealing with what he called the, quote, big-scale insanities of the 20th century, end quote. Well, I can tell you how I dealt with the big-scale insanities of the 20th century. I read Saul Bellow. Some of the very best hours of my life were spent on the porch of a lakeside cottage with an open copy of Herzog on my lap, or on a train roaring through Europe, charging through France on my way to Spain, on my way to Morocco, reading The Adventures of Augie March. Or in my bed on a summer evening, enjoying the improbably long days of sunlight, a gentle breeze floating in the window, a hush outside as the lawnmowers and leaf blowers and traffic subside for the night, and me with the mental firecrackers of Humboldt's gift, keeping me engaged and alert and amused and inspired. Good Lord, where to begin? I've read every novel, just about every biography, I think, every letter. This guy is a hero of mine. He's on Mount Olympus. He is Mount Olympus. Okay. Deep breath. Let's read a few emails, including one with me in the woodshed. A gaff, people, an error. And a listener who takes me to task. We'll get there, but not quite yet. First, subject. History of Literature Praise, email from Honorbon. Hello, Jack. Good morning. I must admit in the beginning, I am not an old listener. In fact, I stumbled across this podcast on Spotify just three months ago, but I am hooked. I'm a master's student of marine biology at the University of Portsmouth, UK, but literature is my passion. The first episode I listened to was the Haruki Murakami episode, and then when I next heard the Jumpa Lahiri episode, I couldn't stop my excitement, because being a Bengali diasporic person myself, it was a great moment to see one of my favorite authors being talked about. I do not listen to the episodes in any particular order. I listen to one episode each day while walking to my classes. Before ending the email, I would like to put forward a request. Please include more short stories. You read them beautifully. Yet you don't overdo it. There's a certain quality in that, which I absolutely admire. Those are my favorite episodes. Hope to hear from you soon. Literally, ha ha. Well, I applied to that one, you know. Thank you, thank you. Love to have you on board. Thanks, Honorbon, for the nice email and so on. A charming email deserves a response. I did my best. And he emailed back, Dear Jack, you replied. <laughs> oh, it absolutely made my month. The recent episode about Chekhov and his short story was very interesting. I would like to mention one thing that many of us listeners don't praise enough is your short stories. I mean, when you, Jack, tell us about some of your personal accounts and experiences, and it seems like a short story in itself. For example, the story you told us about your childhood friend, Felsky, or the time this author didn't mention your name in the acknowledgments. Yes, oh yes, I remember that. These little things that talk about you and your podcast. Uh, maybe that should be. These little things that you talk about in your podcast makes you so much more real in a sense, much more relatable. Please keep that tradition going on. Please, I beg you. Have a great day. 
and happy new year. Honor bond. <laughs> well, what a nice email, both of them. I'm more than flattered that Honor Bond likes the little anecdotes and personal stories I drop in from time to time. It helps me make sense of the world and literature, too, for that matter. I can't imagine thinking about literature, let alone doing this podcast, without using those to try to comprehend things. I was planning to give a little nod of credit to all the people I've encountered along the way, like Mr. Felsky. And like the author who didn't properly acknowledge me. But then I thought, the woman who didn't acknowledge me is getting what she deserves, isn't she? I should steal all the credit from her. As she stole it from me. I'm just kidding, of course. I am very appreciative toward them for giving me the, the, the grist for my mill. The raw stuff <laughs> for these stories. And of course to Honorbon for writing a pair of beautiful emails. Many thanks. Next up, subject, William Blake episode. Dear Jack, as a philosophy professor who secretly loves literature, the secret being more than philosophy. <laughs> Quite a confession. <laughs> I won't give his name. I have enjoyed a number of your wonderful podcast episodes. In particular... I enjoy your non-pretentious, sincere, and insightful treatment of texts that too often get chewed over, cud style, by academics. I would add that you deliver your commentaries and personal asides and anecdotes with an original literary voice. I believe you've published. Apologies for my ignorance. I must look into your work. Well, let me pause here. No apologies necessary. How could I blame you for ignorance? Not all of us can be blessed with perfection. Those of us who have been so blessed must exhibit some compassion to the less fortunate. It's part of the burden of being perfect, frankly. Email continues anyway, writing in regards to an error in your recent William Blake episode. Hmm. I'm assuming others may have written as well, but when I didn't hear a correction on the ensuing episode on poetry, I thought it appropriate to send a heads up. Hmm, I'm intrigued. Let me pause here and say, I make a lot of mistakes, but so do my listeners who point out my mistakes. A lot of listeners tell me I get something wrong, and so I double-check, and it turns out my listener was mistaken. It's a little like those wonks, would-be wonks, who point out some grammar rule, like they change who to whom, or vice versa. Except you realize, if you know grammar, that they actually don't understand the rule as well as they think they do. Just learn the rule before you talk about it, before you correct others. It is 100 times worse if you correct someone when you yourself are wrong. Just say nothing at all if you don't know. But on the subject of saying nothing at all, you can take that point too far. I have this thing where I spent years afraid to ask people who, whom I hadn't seen for a while, how are your parents? Or, hey, how's your brother? Because part of me thought, what if something terrible happened? What if their parents are dead? What if their, their brother was diagnosed with cancer? This could turn this lighthearted, lighthearted question into a, take it to a dark place. Well, I've gotten over that now, people. One, 
because I've gotten older, and as you get older, you realize that bad things happen. It's weird to talk about the weather when you should be talking about how someone is suffering. And two, what is the point of avoiding those things? I've learned that an awkward moment in a conversation is not the worst thing in the world. Why avoid it? It can be the best thing. Not the best thing in the world. The best thing you can do at that particular moment. It's the Midwestern and Midwesterner in me. My Midwestern roots. Are you afraid of emotion, conflict? It's how I was born and raised. It's very easy to engage with bad news, actually. You just say, oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. How is she doing? Or, I'm sorry. He was a good man. Or whatever. You can be a human being, even if you were born in the Midwest. Speaking of awkward moments, let's hear what the error was from our listener, the philosophy professor. He says, I believe you began citing Blake's birth year as 1857 as opposed to 1757. <laughs> wow, what a gaffe. Did I really do that? How could I? Must have been very early. Very early. Pre-coffee. That's a pre-coffee statement. There's no perfection at that point, people. Not even basic competence, it seems. Blake was the firstborn of the romantics of our six great romantic poets. They were all dead by 1857. Must have been a slip of the tongue. Matt, who wrote this email. Come on, Matt. Give me a break. Just a little slip of the tongue. Show, show some compassion for me, the deeply confused, the wayward. Did I really call myself perfect a few moments ago? Only a deeply imperfect person would do that, right? So I said 18 instead of 17. It was an honest, one-off mistake. No harm, no foul. No serious consequences. Matt continues... I thought perhaps that was the end of the issue. But you continued in the middle of your presentation to say he was born two years after the publication of Darwin's Origin of the Species. That, of course, continued the error as the latter appeared in 1859. Oh, no. Oh, no, 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 no. Now that is just awful. Bad Jack. To not only make the mistake, but to compound it with some insight. Aha! Blake. <laughs> Blake is coming right after Darwin. So that's in the air, too. And all of it just a complete mix up. A mix up of the mind. My apologies to you and all my listeners. Wow. That is pretty bad. The world. Oh. Hopefully the world will recover, but one never knows what ignorance will lead to, does one. What a great phrase in Matt's email. That, of course, continued the error. <laughs> of course. You can hear in that, of course, the sentiment that Matt is expressing. The sentiment of, I hope you are keeping up now. <laughs> can I say, of course? You're not truly this dumb, are you? We're all together again on the same page in the world of the sane, where Blake was born in 1757, not 1857. 
before Darwin. Not <laughs> he wasn't growing up in the aftermath of Darwin. <sighs> Matt does let me off the hook somewhat. Don't know if I deserve it, but he does. He continues anyway, just a note to encourage a correction on a forthcoming episode, lest the fact-checking internet zombies storm your tower. Parentheses. Well, I suppose I'm one of them here. Ha! <laughs> Thank you, internet zombie. Fact-checking internet zombie. I'm putting up no resistance here. I'm surrendering to the zombies. They're up the tower over the crenellated wall, and I am here. They found me here, on my knees, my head bowed. The white flag is raised as I sadly shake my head. Yes, yes, you are right. As my hero Dr. Johnson said after writing an entire dictionary, the first English dictionary which he wrote by himself, only to be asked by a woman why in the world he defined pastern as being the knee of a horse, when, of course, a pastern was the sloping part of a horse's foot between the fetlock and the hoof. Of course, of course. And Dr. Johnson replied, Ignorance, madam, pure ignorance. Matt boosts me a little. Please continue to bring us the trove of insightful commentary on world masterpieces of literature. Parentheses, as a side note, I came slightly late to the party, so probably missed it, but I assume you already did my favorite American authors, Sherwood Anderson and Steinbeck. Perhaps, even if so, more yet to do on them. Yours in appreciation, Matt. Well, Matt, thank you for the email and the correction. Not so much ignorance on my part as temporary insanity. And we haven't done much Steinbeck here, not yet, but we did a nice Sherwood Anderson episode with our special guest, author Allison Hagee. So you may want to check that one out. It's episode 177. Speaking of Sherwood Anderson, a great Chicago author, we have another great Chicago author coming up, Saul Bellow with Mike Palindrome after this. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus 
in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is our old friend Mike Palindrome, the president of the Literature Supporters Club and a longtime fan of our topic today, Saul Bellow. Mike, welcome back to the History of Literature. Hey, Jack. So, Mike, we're about to head into our draft of 10 Things to Love About Saul Bellow. Uh, He's been an author I've been reading and admiring for about 30 years, I'd say, all the way back to our days at the University of Chicago, where he was sort of a, a... I would say dinosaur, but he was more active than that, more of a literary velociraptor roaming the campus. Is that when you began reading him as well? I did not. I I only started, I think you um, shamed me into reading him. Uh, (laughs) After graduation? (laughs) Yeah, it was probably probably two or three years after graduation. And um, you you try to curate a book that you thought I would love. And Mm. so you, you recommended Herzog. Ah, which yep. um, I, you know, thought parts were very, very, very good, and other parts were kind of dull, and I, I didn't, I didn't take to it. So it was only I, I had to take a little time off from him. And I, three years later, and so I'm in my late twenties. I read Henderson Seize the Day, Humboldt's Gift, and mm. Augie March in about yeah. five month span. <laughs> then you came around, uh, yeah. Maybe we uh, might say you had to mature a little bit, <laughs> <laughs> develop you know, as a reader. You know, I had forgotten this, but I think it's because um, I was a big Martin Amos fan at yeah, the time. Sure. And uh, he, I read somewhere that maybe in his memoir uh, experience that Bello was the guy for him. Bello was his hero. He thinks yeah. uh, Augie March is the great American novel. And, and Bello was really not just a a father figure in a literary sense. He was a, literally a father figure for him. There's a, a story Amos writes, uh, I guess it's probably in one of his essays or, or autobiographies, that uh, after Kingsley Amos died, he called, Martin Amos called Saul Bellow, and Saul Bellow said, I'll be your father now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Amos went to see Bellow at his deathbed. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, just so many ways in which they uh connected yeah. you know just beyond their writing and i mean they they it was a little bit of a fanboy relationship i mean he, he loved bellow to death yeah uh, i uh i've got a few quotes by martin amos here that we can get into when we get to that point in the draft but i wanted to talk a little bit about bellow's reputation on campus mm-hmm. uh, this was in the late 80s early 90s he had kind of a mixed reputation he was a living legend and he was mr chicago and mr university of chicago it was sort of rare to have a celebrity professor like him in your midst and and also a best-selling and world-famous novelist he had won the nobel prize and the professors i think were all a little bit jealous he was wealthy he was well known he met with uh, leaders of the city and the country and he kind of traveled in this rarefied air, and yet uh, he was cranky, and you would hear about these spats he would get into with professors, intellectual spats. He did a lot of sparring, which I think is uh, kind of uh, typical for him, especially in his later years uh, as he got into his 60s and 70s. And then he had all these wives and ex-wives and girlfriends, and 
he would pinch the cheeks of undergraduate girls or women, and he would sometimes seem a little bit out of control, which also was Saul Bellow. He seemed like, uh, I read somewhere that he, I think it was in the James Atlas biography, mm-hmm. that he would routinely throw away hundreds of pages of novels that other writers would just kill to have written. And <laughs> there, there's just something a little bit, even though he was not a big man, he was he really was larger than life, both as a writer and just as a figure kind of cutting through campus, at least in those years. You know, I was, I guess, uh, just not as interested in literature as I am now, because to me, I always talk about with a friend of mine, like, would you rather be, you know, a rock star or, you know, a famous writer? And I think back then when I was 18, I'd rather be a rock star. Mm. So I was more concerned with like, you know, the police and the pixies and the pogues <laughs> than, than Sal Bellow. And it was only probably until I was uh, a junior that I heard that he was teaching one class every other year. Yeah. And, um, and you could audit it. I think it was, it was a grad school class in the committee on social thought. And, uh, I, I, I half regretted not trying to take one of his classes. Well, I think that's the thing that made professors so jealous is in a way he was kind of like a rock star, you know, that he he could live like one or he could, you know, obviously it wasn't uh, the same, but it was, you know, just that celebrity. And I don't know if we have writers, uh, there's only maybe a handful of writers who have that kind of celebrity today, but maybe back then it was a little more common, you know, someone you might see on Johnny Carson or somebody you might... uh, hear about going to have lunch with the president or things like that. Yeah, I mean, to go right into the draft, um, we're going to do this draft. Uh, that That's kind of my number one, you know, th- thing to talk about, which is that he was sort of our, the American heavyweight mm, to, yeah. you know, to Tolstoy, Balzac, yep. Shakespeare. And I think he was like the first writer who, he, the way he uses uh, historic historical and literary illusions mm-hmm. felt fully justified. You know, when he he would talk about Kirk Kierkegaard or Hegel, like you just felt like he understood them. It wasn't this cheap, you know, kind of Woody Allen, adult ed, adult education, little joke, you yeah. know, superficial joke about philosophers. And Then he was yeah. really wrestling with the ideas and, and taking on historical moments, that's the other thing. There there feels like such heft in his books. Yeah. And it almost seems like, I mean, on the one hand, you could say that it's not aging as well because it's not the same as it was when, when if you read it in a book that came out in 1976 and you read it in 1976. But on the other hand, it is a little bit like Tolstoy or Proust or someone like that where you almost feel like you need to learn the history in order to really appreciate the book, that it, it, it's so, uh, the sweep of it is so broad that it's almost, uh, demands that you, you catch up to it, that you bring yourself up to speed so that you can really understand the ideas that are inside it. it you know, in Humboldt's gift, you know, when, when there, there are sections like this, Humboldt is speaking and he's saying he was off then his spiel, his spiel took in Freud, Heine, Wagner, Goethe in Italy, Lennon's dead brother, Wild Bill Hickok's costumes, the New York Giants, Ring Lardner on the Grand Opera, on Grand Opera, Swinburne on flagellation, and John D. Rockefeller on religion. Mm. I mean, it's uh, you know, it really is, you know, the 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 marriage of his literary style and 
grappling with what he considered to be like important subjects. Yeah. Um, is for me probably the first time I had come across that. And this is pre Magic Mountain. So, yeah, right. But yeah, like Thomas Mann or uh, books like Middlemarch or Anna Karenina or War and Peace, if you can read those books, you could read Saul Bellow, you know, as far as if you're willing to lose yourself in a big book like that and grapple with the ideas of it, then Saul Bellow, and he feels fresher than those authors do, I think. Even fresher than uh, than your your guy, <laughs> than uh, The Magic Mountain. I mean, um, he's more recent and his prose style feels fresher. And I think he's, uh, I'm not going to say he's greater. But uh, he does feel, uh, I could see where someone might pick up a Saul Bellow book today and uh, yeah. enjoy it in a way that they might not enjoy The Magic Mountain quite as much. And, and it made an impression on me that Europeans loved him. Mm. I mean, you, you mm-hmm. go to you go to France and you, or, or, you know, Paris or London and you see huge sections on Bellow and maybe you'd see one Philip Roth. Yeah. Um, and it, it did seem like, you know, masturbating into a, an uncored apple and Portney's com- Portnoy's complaint versus that you know didn't travel as well <laughs> <laughs> versus you know the 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 Americanness of Augie right, March right it was a little bit like you know, yeah comparing you know Tolstoy to you know the back of some folklore cards or something yeah <laughs> baseball cards okay yeah. so that so. so that's your first pick is just the i guess the scope and the sweep and just the, the... i was gonna say the europeanness ah. I mean, and, and um i mean we we can go get into the americanness the american side of him and with my next with my later picks but okay uh so i will take my number one which is his prose style uh, Bellows prose, it's something he invented and now it's often been imitated. I've heard that, uh, Balzac used to read Walter Scott every day before writing just to get him in the mood and get him in the right frame of mind and, and get his prose kind of turbocharged. And I've heard Martin Amos and Dave Eggers and many other authors do the same thing with Bellow. They read a few pages before they sit down at the computer. It's just got such momentum. It's like a freight train charging down the tracks or a hurricane that blows through a coastal village. Uh, it's kind of like extended poetry. Do you ever feel that when you're reading Bellow? It's like you're reading a sentence will have a line or adjectives or adverbs that are as interesting and well-placed as you might read in poetry, but you just get page after page after page of it. And it it just sort of unfurls. I've got some examples here and some uh, some commentary that helps explain it. But it it's just it's got the musicality and it's got different mm-hmm. voices and it has this high style and low style. It's got Yiddish in there. You hear old style, uh, old school radio programs. You hear different characters and you can really hear them talk. Uh, he can do first person. He can do third person. He's got a uh, like a, uh, the 17th century sermon. I was noting this. There's like John Dunn will be mixed with a, a tough talking streetwise thug. You know, <laughs> it's a lot of a lot of voices from his immigrant past and his youth, and it just ends up being this majestic and and magnetic kind of experience to be reading such rich prose. So uh, I've got an example here: the famous. 
opening of Augie March, which he says was when he he really sort of let his prose style loose. Uh, and he realized he later said famously, when this voice started pouring out of me, all I had to do was run around with buckets to catch it. <laughs> and it, it starts, I am an American, Chicago born, Chicago, that somber city and go at things as I have taught myself freestyle and will make the record in my own way. First to knock, first admitted. Sometimes an innocent knock, sometimes a not so innocent. <laughs> and it kind of pulls you in. Martin Amos uh, pointed out how Bellows' language really broke from Henry James and Flaubert, which were the two models that dominated the first few decades of of the 20th century in American fiction, which is funny that Henry James dominated. I mean, of all the styles to imitate, it's like <laughs> <laughs> probably the one that people should have left alone. But he, he says how Bellows' voice sets the mood as much as the words themselves. And as he put it, Bellow after Augie March used a style, and this is Amos's quote, that loves and embraces awkwardness, spurning elegance as a false lead, words tumbling and rattling together in the order they choose. And he gave a couple of examples. One of them was that a man, he was describing a man, and he said, glittering his teeth and hungry. <laughs> and a woman he described as a flat-footed, in-gym-shoes, pug-nosed woman. And it's almost like the 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 images and the words are just climbing all over themselves to get into the sentence. You know, they're, they're backed up and they're, they're eager to be part of the story. That's sort of, sometimes you get that feeling with Bellow that, that things were just flying out of his pen. Yeah. I mean, I, I really like the way he jumps. It, it kind of, I, you know, in the margins, I think in some of my Bellow books, I wrote clear, you know, not boring. Yeah. And, um, you know, love this leap. Um, yep. The, the dialogue is incredible. That was going to be one of my picks. Um, there's a scene in, uh, I'm trying to find it. And I think in Augie March, when the, the, the character Augie's talking to this woman and she's trying to explain to him that she's been in love with him. And he, he's like, you're what? And he, she's like, I'm falling in love with you. And he goes, go away. You don't love me. It's just an idea. It's not even an idea. <laughs> it's like, it's just hilarious. I mean, these, these conversations, so. Yeah. Or sometimes he'll, he'll, he'll have these, they're almost like soliloquies where he's sort of talking to himself. There's, here's one I've got here where he says, uh, I fall upon the thorns of life. I bleed. And then I fall upon the thorns of life. I bleed. And what next? I get laid. I take a short holiday. But very soon after, I fall upon those same thorns with gratification in pain or suffering in joy. Who knows what the mixture is? What good, what lasting good is there in me? Is there nothing else between birth and death but what I can get out of this perversity? Only a favorable balance of disorderly emotions? No freedom? Only impulses? And what about all the good I have in my heart? Does it mean anything? Is it simply a joke? a false hope that makes a man feel the illusion of worth. And so he goes on with his struggles. But this good is no phony. I know it isn't. I swear it. <laughs> um, there's, uh, here's another prose passage I wanted to read. It's so good. It, this is from Humboldt's Gift, which is my favorite. That's the one um, I reread the most often. Of all mm -hmm. the novels, that's the one I find myself returning to the most. And he's talking about a, a car driving through part of Chicago. And it says, 
The car went snoring and squealing through the tunnel and came out in bright sunlight. Tall stacks of filth artillery fired silently into the Sunday sky with beautiful bursts of smoke. The acrid smell of gas refineries went, in, went into your lungs like a spur. The rushes were brown as onion soup. It's just, uh, <laughs> it's like any one of those things are so vivid and so inventive and clever. And they're just, uh, there's, it, it, it really is kind of astonishing that he was able to pack so many different uh, perfect word choices or surprising word choices into, you know, these were like 700 page novels or something. Yeah, it never it never feels flowery. I mean, James Wood says that he's, uh, aside from Faulkner, the greatest American literary stylist. And, mm -hmm. But you never feel like he's, you know, lay, laying it on, um, you know, the way yeah. sometimes Fitzgerald feels like, you know, it's it's so precious. It, he, Bellow never feels precious to me. He doesn't, and he doesn't feel like uh, James Joyce sometimes does, where you feel like he's agonizing over the words, or he's, mm -hmm. you know, that it feels almost laborious to get the perfect word and to get the, uh, to pack things in and, and to wrench it tighter and tighter and tighter and keep increasing the impact of it. It feels more like he's unfurling a great story with, that he's just a supremely good storyteller who also happens to... Uh, to be a great observer and a really well-read person, but also someone who's really savvy about life and, and all of that. And, and somebody who cares, somebody who's he's energetic and he's got uh, passions and he's got huge dreams and huge flaws. And he's trying to make his way through the world with this sort of uh, personality that's got all of these... Uh, you know, he's always falling in love. He's always getting divorced. He's always feeling guilty. He's always angry. He's he's really uh, kind of a one-man wrecking crew. Okay, so are we on... Uh, I feel like I'm going through all of my picks all at once, but uh, <laughs> what is your number two? So I, I, I went with uh, humor and specifically mm. Henderson, mm. the Rain King. It's um, like a satire of Hemingway, right? Or the Hemingway and... figure. And uh, I mean, it, he he was an anthropology uh, major um, and studied with uh, some field anthropologists. Mm -hmm. I didn't know this, but I guess what, one of his old professors wrote him a letter after Henderson was published and said that he he had kind of taken liberty with a serious subject. <laughs> <laughs> you mean Which, when he was before he was a novelist, when he was still an academic? No, no, that Henderson. Oh, Henderson, that, right? Got yeah, that. that um, but I just, I just think Henderson works on so many levels, and I, I actually don't mind that it's dated. I, I feel like it is definitely dated. I, you can't escape that. But um, it's, it's so charming. Um, there, there's a scene near the end when he befriends a circus bear that's aged and can no longer do tricks, um, <laughs> and the, the, the two of them ride a roller coaster together, and it's, it's. <laughs> It's just scary, so they hug each other, and it goes like this. It goes, I worked with Smolak. Smolak, I had almost forgotten this animal, Smolak, an old brown bear whose trainer, also named Smolak, he had been named for him, had beat him with the rest of the troop and left him. Um, there was no need of a trainer now. Smolak was too old, and his, muster, his master had dusted him off. This ditched old creature was almost green with time and down to his last teeth like the pits of dates. <laughs> 
I mean, it, it was like, when's the last time you, you, you heard the word dates being used right. to describe, <laughs> you know, an animal or a, a human? It's, yeah, the pits of dates. Very yeah. good. Ah, okay. Uh, I mean, it's a, uh, and it made me think of, uh, there's a great Paris Review interview from 1966 or 7, um, where uh, Bello talks about how he prefers his later novels or middle novels rather than his early ones. And he says that if you have to choose between complaint and comedy, I choose comedy, mm. which I thought was interesting. Yeah, that as he as he developed as a writer, it almost feels like he's pointing out the absurdity of himself and the people around him. And it sometimes gets a little mean, uh, but most of the time it it just seems to me to be kind of charismatic and charming that I'm, I'm, uh, I don't feel like we're kicking people when they're down or shooting fish in a barrel, but we're enjoying the, the sweep of life and sort of the foibles of the characters along with the narrator in a, a way that doesn't feel too mean or vindictive. Yeah. I mean, I think there are definitely um, self-deprecating moments. And like in Henderson, there's, there's a bit of dialogue I love that the narrator goes, uh, his son asks him, what did you fight for, dad? And the narrator goes, why? What do I fight for? Hell, for the truth. Yes, that's it, the truth, against falsehood. But most of the fighting is against myself. Mm. Yeah. All of that said, sort of a big caveat here, which is he he does feel very dated when it comes to women characters, especially the women who are sort of stand-ins for the wives that he was often divorcing or or in yeah. the process of divorcing. And he also, he does not write black characters very well. And I was, uh, I was saddened to read as I was researching this, that our old neighborhood of Hyde Park, they were going mm -hmm. to name a street after him in Hyde Park, and the neighborhood rejected the proposal because of his racial insensitivity, which is just a, it's a big downside for Bello that he, you know, he was one of those guys who he was left, he was on the left when he was young, and then he got right, turned to the right when he was older. And I think there was some, probably some bad blood based on mm -hmm. the stuff he said when he was older. But had he been born 50 or 75 years later, he probably would have been a different writer. And he, he didn't adjust very well, I think, to changes in Chicago that as it changed from the the immigrant city of his youth uh, there were a lot of demographic changes that I think he didn't adjust to very well. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm curious to reread uh, uh, Mr. Sandler's Planet and Herzog. I think those are the two books that uh, a lot of people kind of use against them. Mm. You know, it, it, when they talk about the when the conversation is about you know how dated he is and how yeah um, you know how how white he is, um, right? Especially Sandler's Planet. Yeah. Which I, I read somewhere that it's, uh, you know, he considered it a masterpiece. So that that made me want to really give it another try. I, I, I breezed through it and I was probably ready to throw it at any given point. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So uh, I think it's my pick now. Uh, I will take as my number two, Chicago. Oh, um, nice. And this was, yeah, when I was in Italy, you were talking about how uh, Europeans loved Saul Bellow. And when I was in Italy studying abroad, 
I used to tell people I was from Chicago or the, I was studying at the University of Chicago. And, mm-hmm. and I remember the father, I was living with a family for a few months and, and the father of the family, when I said I was in Chicago, he said, ah, Al Capone. And then he made like a machine gun with his hands. And he was like, da, 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 you know, and then he said, and Sol Bello. And I was so impressed by, uh, by Sol Bello, you know, that, that here was a guy, it's not like he was a professor or something. I wouldn't have expected him to read, um, you know, a heavyweight novelist, but here he was associating Chicago with Saul Bellow and he had read enough of Saul Bellow's novels to have gotten, uh, that was really the impression that he had of Chicago other than uh, Al Capone. So, you know, this was, Chicago's a great city. It's often overlooked. And if it is treated, it's often given a sort of, Oh, this is the place of slaughterhouses and the city of big shoulders, and this is, you know, full of working class, but maybe uh, uh, midwesterners who who uh, you don't associate them uh, Chicagoans with cutting edge intellectual life, and that was kind of what he blended together is all of the the hardworking aspects of Chicago and the the street wise aspects of Chicago with the sort of rarefied great books atmosphere of the university and and of intellectuals. And it's just a beautiful blend. In Chicago, he describes things like Lake Michigan and and the streets, you know, Maxwell Street and all of these these great elements of Chicago that that really deserved their champion. And that was him. He was kind of the guy. Yeah, I mean you you can you, you can make the case that he kind of put the the Midwest on the literary map. Yeah. You know, I think a, a lot of people were surprised or, you know, I was that he was, you know, Canadian and a son of an immigrant. And then he kind of constructed this Midwestern identity. Yeah. Um, and then he constructed this European identity. You know, he had spent some time in Paris and he, he dressed impeccably. I mean, there, there are yeah. stories of, you know, that he and Alan Bloom, who his good friend, the two of them would go shopping together <laughs> and buy things like gloves. And yeah, they were, yeah, they were, uh, Alan Bloom, especially. And in the book Ravelstein, which is based on Alan Bloom, right. his character, he, he comes across as a real clothes horse in that book. Here's a, here's a, a quote I wanted to share. This is, uh, Bello writing about Chicago. This is from Humboldt's gift again. It's, uh, the quote is, from the skyscraper, I could contemplate the air of Chicago on this short December afternoon. A ragged western sun spread orange light over the dark shapes of the town, over the branches of the river, and the black trusses of bridges. The lake, gilt silver and amethyst, was ready for its winter cover of ice. <laughs> it's just a, a beautiful description that, once again, you sort of, you know, I'm so used to reading... Uh, literature about New York City or about the ocean or about the desert. You know, you sort of associate it that uh, it's nice to see Chicago getting its turn. (laughs) Okay, so what is your number three? So for number three, I I put philosophy, I think Mm. is, uh, and I guess, you know, when, when I think of Bellows' philosophy, I think of his extremely high standards um, uh, for thought, for 
yeah. uh, great ideas. I mean, uh, a quote of his I love is, um, I, I don't even know which character says this, but he says, any man who has rid himself of superfluous ideas in order to take that first step has done something significant. Mm. And in interviews, he's a great interviewee. I mean, yeah. he, he talks about really surprising interviews. Um, he talks about his love of Theodore Dreiser and um, uh, right. how he says more than any American writer, he, he gives you access, primary access to emotions, hmm. which I thought was like, boy, I mean, it, you know, it, 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 it sounds, it can sound pretentious coming out of anyone's mouth, but yeah. somehow Bellow, he, he has the weight and the style in, in a way to convey something that would otherwise sound pretentious. Right. Sound, you know, like just, I mean, that he's striving and kind of urging you on. And I think he was hugely influential um, in terms of kind of having writers look in the mirror and say, you know, well, what is, what is this about? Like, what, what am I, what's my, what's the relevance of what I'm writing? Yeah. Yeah. And to be ambitious, to, um, to kind of put yourself in the same, territory as as Dostoevsky or Tolstoy or or the writers who were they're great books authors and in fact that was one of my picks so I'll just latch onto yours here and skip one of mine down the road but I had a quote here he said people don't realize how much they are in the grip of ideas we live among ideas much more than we live in nature <laughs> and that's kind of that's kind of what it's like to read a Bella book you get all these great description of the physical world but you feel like there's something worthy about wrestling with the ideas that form us and kind of the ones that are of their day and, and are having their moment and that are being wrestled with by people around the country or around the world, but also just the greatest ideas of all time, you know, what it means to be a, be in love or what it means to be a father and uh, you know, he takes all of that as part of his um, almost like a mission or his project to really dig into all of those ideas and then put it onto the page. Yeah, I mean, I think he 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 clearly um, was sick of the the books he was reading. I mean, there's a you know the what his I, I feel like he was almost holding back at how much he disliked his contemporaries and so it's always interesting the way he <laughs> made a little place for certain writers like philip roth yeah um and, and there's a great essay by uh the novelist brian morton called tolstoy and god mm, yep. in the agni um boston university mfa journal that I, I highly recommend to all the listeners. Um, but Morton, just to give you a little teaser, Morton was a, is a huge fan of Bellow. And when his first novel was coming out through his, Morton's publisher, Bellow agreed to blurb the book without having read the book because he started to read it and found it workmanlike and gave up. Um, but Bellow said he, as a condition to blurbing the book, uh, Morton had to come to a dinner party. And the essay is about the dinner party. And um, you kind of see Bellow not holding back. That, that's the way I think of this the, this essay. Mm. Yeah. So, and so some of these sound bites, you know, you think of someone like Dale Peck 
and his takedowns. I, I think Bellow really, in private, I can imagine him railing against a lot of his contemporaries. Well, he was so smart and he was so good at what he did. You almost feel like he's Mozart surrounded by all these Salieri's and they would come up to him and they would say, you were so important to me. And don't you want to read my book? I, I, and they viewed themselves as, you know, I modeled it after you or you were an inspiration and I think you would really like it. Here's, here's my prose. Do you want to read it? And if it's Martin Amos, he says, great, I can recognize you as somebody I can also admire or I can see the value of this. But for for most writers, he was probably like, well, this is just, um, you know, this is weak sauce. This this isn't anywhere close to what I'm doing and what I'm trying to do. And and, you know, just being irritated that it's it's taking up space or it's, it's uh, you know, words filling the page. I don't think he felt that way about Philip Roth, but uh, my guess is he maybe did feel that way about Brian Morton when he read that book. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, you know, in the day of blurbs, um, and, and there, there's a great quote in the essay where he, um, the, the Brian Morton says to his publisher, like, how can he blurb my book without reading it? And he <laughs> says, Bellow doesn't think much about blurbs. <laughs> <laughs> and doesn't he say in that, like, like, trust me, you don't want him to read it? As yeah. if, uh, <laughs> like, yeah. like, if he reads it, the blurb is likely to be a lot less good than if he just writes the blurb. <laughs> yeah, it's very. It's, uh, I mean, to to Morton's credit, um, that it it's perfectly written. Um, you know, I, I'm not a big fan of like slice of life, but it, it really is a great essay. Yeah. Um. So while we're still on the topic of his great books and kind of the way he's wrestling with ideas, this is one I wanted to mention when you were talking about humor. There's uh, a passage in Ravelstein where he says uh, he has the Ellen Bloom character say. You know, mm -hmm. as Socrates says, the unexamined life is not worth living. And then the Bellow character says, and the examined life will make you want to kill yourself. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and the Alan Bloom character basically says, you know, oh, this is why I always loved you. And, you know, this is only you would come up with that and that kind of thing. And it, it, uh -huh. it's, it's funny, but it also you kind of have to know a little bit to be in on the joke. It's not like you have to be a deep scholar of Socrates or anything. It's not, it's accessible to somebody who has kind of a passing familiarity with it. And it's even, even if you don't know that it's Socrates or don't know any of the background, you still can, can find it amusing and kind of funny. But when these are sprinkled throughout the narrative, it does make you feel like you're engaged in this worthy endeavor. I always feel like I'm reading uh, a Saul Bellow novel, like I'm also reading a book of essays at the same time, or I'm also uh, yeah. taking kind of a refresher course in, um, you mm. know, the history of civilization, or or sometimes it's um, uh, more of a subspecialty like art history or something. But you feel like there's, uh, you feel like a better person for being inside the book and for engaging with the ideas that Bellow is engaging with. Yeah, I mean, you, you know, you, you take a book like Man Without Qualities, mm -hmm. and yeah, we haven't talked know, about that much. Um, but yeah, that's the uh, ideas. The ideas are so fascinating, but there there really are like too many of them. Yeah, and <laughs> you, you just want there to be more about like you know horse racing, right? Or, you right. know, uh, you know, the 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 brother sisters relationship. I mean, 
you just, it, it, I mean, I, I feel like there's such humanity in Bella's writing that um, a lot of many great writers that I love, I almost have to turn the humanity, the human part of myself off yeah. <laughs> to enjoy the man without qualities. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, if it's if it's only ideas, it becomes really sterile. But with Bello, you get like you get a character who's inherited a house after his father died, and so he's he's trying really hard to um, get the lawn in shape or something, and he's talking about the struggles with that, and then he talks about you know the the beautiful lunches he used to eat, the simple lunches that he would have, or the mice that are continually crawling into the kitchen and 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 yet and then you're also getting you know Marx and Freud or or Trotsky or uh, you know the moon landing or it all just kind of fuses together uh, you know in Humboldt's gift he's he's got all those scenes where he's playing handball and uh, you know you want to or squash or whatever it is and you want to go it makes me want to go do that too you know you sort of uh or there's the what's it Humboldt's gift where he's he's practicing standing on his head someone's told him that that would be a good way to stay yeah. healthy or something or he's always doing push-ups or he's he's just got all these little projects and and schemes and things like that but it feels like real life where you you've got you know the that period in, in your life where you're making coffee by this special method or you try things for six months you know for like six months I was making smoothies every day for my kids and, you know, all of that, um, uh, comes together, but also in the middle of all of these, uh, great books and great thinkers, it's really a kind of an intoxicating mix. Oh, I think, oh, I think I, I was going to say, I think for my next pick, I'm going to just come up, come from left field and just say that I love the fact that he didn't write a lot of books. Mm, right. <laughs> that I, I have, I have basically, read his entire body of work um and (laughs) really you read uh the dean's december i think i started it maybe uh, i have to put an asterisk next to that more die of heartbreak um (laughs) i i own those i don't think i've finished either all right i didn't i I did not read more die of heartbreak (laughs) well he lived a long time but you're right he came out with a like when he when he hit his peak, he was coming out with a novel like every five years. Yeah. Um, you know, and a lot of authors, they come out with one every year. And then at the, you know, Updike's a good example. And then at the end of his career, it's it's like episodes of television versus a really good film or something. You sort of, you might have ridden along with Updike and enjoyed the having a new book every year. But in the end, you look at it and say, well, which of these are really worth reading again and Bello it was like a novel would come out every five years but it would be an event and it would win the National Book Award and the Pulitzer Prize and it would kind of sum up the whole five-year period yeah I mean I think of Updike and Joyce Carol Oates and Philip Roth and it's it's like a factory production line of a you yeah. know a novel a year and you just you know other than Sabbath Theater um, and Goodbye Columbus I, you know, I mean, you're, you're writing these books because you're being paid that I can't help thinking that I, I don't think, I don't think Updike is being driven by some incredible gnawing in his soul to write r- rabbit redux. I mean, I think, yeah. you know, it, it almost seems like a parody of his, of his talent, Yeah, of, you know, and- yeah. 
You know what's interesting about those writers, too, is it almost seems like their books now get kind of lost unless they have a uh, a movie made out of one of them. Like Philip Roth's mm-hmm. got The Plot Against America is being made into a movie. And, you know, Henry James is a little bit like this, too. Like every every few years we'll go through a Henry James phase and we'll rediscover a Henry James book because uh, mm-hmm. uh, someone's making a movie out of it. Saul Bellow is not like that. Yeah. I can't think of a single film mm-hmm. from a Saul Bellow book. Uh, if there has been one, it has not been uh, something that has ever made it onto my radar, I guess. I know there I was think... a, a short film made of Seize the Day, but. Yeah. That's I mean, I, I think, think I think that could be one of, you know, one of our picks is that, you know, it's extremely hard to turn into a movie, which has to be a compliment. Mm hmm. You know, yeah, um, you just can't capture all of the the pros and just all the yeah. everything packed into it. Um, I don't I've gotten lost on where we are. I know we're kind of starting <laughs> to run out of time. I wanted to mention that I didn't take uh, I had my list uh-huh. of five and I think we've kind of covered all the ground. But one thing I didn't take is Jewishness. I think some people might be surprised I didn't take this. It was hugely important. He was a pioneer. A, an ambassador, he translated Yiddish, and he, mm-hmm. you know, I think he was really important to a lot of people, and he was, people like Philip Roth will talk about how Bello was just knocked down doors for someone like him to follow through, and I think in some ways maybe I didn't take it because I think he he kind of transcended his background as a Jewish writer, but he he also didn't make it vanish either, he just incorporated it, and it it, you could say he's an American writer, and that's rather than saying he's a Jewish American writer, and that's sort of true, and it's not true. Like he's he handled those ideas and themes more like Seinfeld than mm-hmm. uh, something like Fiddler on the Roof. You know, you just have this this brainy, intellectual Larry David type character. If Larry David was born in Chicago and and mm-hmm. was trying to not just understand his own little world, but the intellectual worlds of all the great thinkers. And I saw an article with a title that said, Saul Bellow was so Jewish he could travel any distance and still remain Jewish. And it's kind of, that's kind of who he was, I guess, at the core. But for some reason, that just didn't make it into my top five. Yeah, I mean, it's, you get the sense that he could have written about more Jewish themes. And I think, I, I mean, I can't remember off the top of my head, but I think there are some short stories where, it's it's more of a you know a larger yeah. theme, but I think he was very aware of being pigeonholed and mm-hmm. the limitation of that. So I think that's probably right. I will say that the the descriptions of women in Humboldt's gift, especially the Delmore Schwartz's character's wife and her her role in the book, it, it, I I mean it may be one of the bigger roles of females. And maybe is part of the reason why that book is 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 so great. Mm. I mean, it really is a little yeah. less like a you know a male book. I think that's another thing I hear about his fiction that it's very male. Yeah. So. Well, women in his books are often they're immediately described by the shape of their breasts, and yeah. you get the feeling that they're there. You know, they really are kind of physical objects for the the male narrator or the male protagonist. Well, that's why I got to re- reread Herzog now that it's been, boy, 
almost um, 20 years, more than 20 years since, uh, I mean, that, I mean, if we, if you haven't mentioned that on other episodes, like the, the story behind Herzog is amazing. His best friend slept yeah. with his wife for two years. Um, and they, as they, uh, other friends, mutual friends of theirs knew about they all it. Knew, yeah. And they said the great <laughs> observer of details had no idea. Yeah. I had, uh, let me tick through my list. I had his powers of observation was actually my number two. I didn't, yeah. I don't think I ever took it, but he, yeah, he was famous. He used to call himself a first class noticer and <laughs> said he had total recall. And he, he is, I mean, the stuff that he sees and the stuff that he notices are uh, are so good and then he missed this he had this huge blind spot of his best friend having this affair with his wife and he had no idea and everyone around them knew it's really a great subject for a book and it does make um and then he has a, a daughter in the book and uh and i think it was probably his son mm -hmm. in real life but it was just the the scenes where he's trying to recover that part of his family life they're they're really heartbreaking but it is for people who haven't read it herzog is the story of this man who's kind of having a breakdown because of after this discovery and then he's trying to piece together his life again through letters that he's writing to famous intellectuals and it was the book that i think won him the nobel prize yeah and it's um the his best friend who was also the in real life a novelist also wrote a book about this yeah threesome and the book did not sell at all yeah <laughs> so, i always like that little epilogue yeah let's see okay so those were my five um we've touched on all of them my five were prose style was number one observations was powers of observation was number two great books was number three that's oh no i'm sorry chicago was number two observation was three Great Books was number four, and then Humanity and Hope was my number five. And that was, you know, we've talked about some of his failings. It, it can be hard to read when it comes to race or with women, with views that strike us as playing into stereotypes. And he kind of doubled down on his own cultural insensitivity as he got older, so the essays get a little mm -hmm. bit hard to read. And even for the women, a lot of times they're brainy, like there are a lot of... Uh, he seems mm -hmm. to have had a thing for scientists and mathematicians and and other kinds of college professors. But even then, they're usually crazy and, <laughs> um, you know, overly demanding. And, and um, you know, he went through all these divorces. And when you read his letters, it's just full of uh, anger about money and mm -hmm. stuff like that. So, But if you get past all of that, there's this exuberance in his novels. It's breathtaking and life-affirming. And Martin Amos said, quote, his sentences seem to weigh more than anyone else's. He is like a force of nature. He breaks all the rules. The people in Bellows' fiction are real people, yet the intensity of the gaze that he bathes them in, somehow through the particular, opens up into the universal. And I think that's where, and he, he often does talk about the importance of hope and and, mm -hmm. you know, he lived through the Holocaust and, and a lot of different, the Cold War, there were a lot of reasons to be bleak about life and he wrestles with that but then he also will talk about the importance to humanity of of hope and and optimism yeah and i also will um throw in that you know in this day of technology 
his putting art above everything else is is you know a, a favorite thing to that uh, of mine like he has this quote that he says i feel that art has something to do with the achievement of stillness in the midst of chaos art has something to do with the arrest of attention in the midst of distraction mm. yeah makes you want to go to a museum Makes me want to reread Bello. Reread Bello. And here's another phrase that'll make you want to reread him. He was talking about a lawyer. This is in the story, him with his foot in his mouth. Mm-hmm. And first he says the lawyer has deep wrinkles of cunning on his face. <laughs> <laughs> and then he says his eyes are, quote, like the eyes you glimpse in the heated purple corners of the small mammal house. <laughs> <laughs> So good. Okay. Well, let's leave things there unless uh, there's anything you wanted to mention that we haven't said. Oh, I wanted to talk about the rereading. So I've probably read and where people should uh-huh. start. So I've probably read Humboldt's Gift, I think, 10 times. It's one wow. of my favorite novels. Herzog, I've read three or four. Ravelstein, two or three. Seize the Day, maybe four or five times. I think I've taught that book at one, uh, that novella at some point. Uh, and then a theft was another one that I read. That might've been the first one I read. And Mm -hmm. then, uh, his short stories a few times each, even Mr. Samler's planet I've read two or three times and I, I have problems (laughs) with it. Read Henderson, the rain King. I'm not sure I'm going to reread that one, although it's pretty vivid for me. And then the Dean's December and more die of heartbreak, I think are kind of skippable. Uh, oh, Mm -hmm. and Augie March, of course. Um, I've read a few times and the dangling man and the victim a couple of times each. So I've, I guess I've probably read his novels, you know, I don't know what that would add up to maybe 50 times. Um, and wow. uh, I've spent a lot of hours with Mr. Bellow, but um, I certainly uh, wouldn't mind picking him up and reading him again tonight. I'm gonna I'm gonna read Herzog and report back to this group. <laughs> okay, well, Mike, thanks as always for joining me on the history of literature. Thanks, Jack. There we go. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Mike, as always, who's going to be back again soon with one of his favorite authors, someone he ranks even more highly than Saul Bellow. And no, it's not Thomas Mann or Tolstoy or Dostoevsky, even higher than that. And for me, he might not even be the top 10 or 25 or 100. A little sneak preview for you. Keep you guessing and keep you reading. And writing to me those beautiful emails and comments and keep you just thinking, people. Keep your minds open, your hearts open, too. Because what do you have in life to do that's better than that? Better than an open mind and an open heart and an open book with open eyes. Open to literature, open to learning, open to life. Open up! And open your wallets and visit patreon.com slash literature. No, 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 no. I'm not going to spoil this. How crass was that? Skip the wallet. Keep your wallet closed. Skip the credit card this time around. Just stick with the books. The books and your loved ones and your beautiful, beautiful mind. Absorbing whatever prose you find that engages you. Maybe it's Saul Bellow. Maybe it's Toni Morrison. Maybe it's Julio Cortazar. Maybe you just go back to Jane Austen again and again, or discover the pleasures of James Baldwin, or Henry James, or Theodore Dreiser, or Henry Fielding. 
Maybe it's the prose of someone very old or someone who wrote in a lonely corner of a dying empire. Or maybe it's the prose of someone out there who's putting the finishing touches on a new masterpiece that we are all waiting for, that we all need. Maybe, maybe, maybe. I'm Jack Wilson, open for business and waiting for the maybe. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.